0: If you're lucky enough to call yourself Australian then the country you call home is quite possibly the most beautiful, incredible place in the world. Australia is home to the planet's largest living structure and we have a rich and sacred history home to the oldest, longest living civilization in the world. Despite our remoteness from major international markets, Australians have often punched above our weight on the global stage. We were the second country in the world to allow women to vote after the Kiwis and our election system was once known to be world leading in its innovation. Qantas once powered an interstate flight with cooking oil. Australians gave the world Wi-Fi, the black box flight recorder, spray on skin, the electronic pacemaker, Google Maps, the medical application of penicillin, polymer banknotes, cochlear implant, the ultrasound scanner, and the world's first anti-cancer vaccine. Australians are incredible people and we live in a rich nation, both in history and in natural resources but the true potential of Australia have been limited by its leaders. The integrity and character of Australia's leaders have steadily declined for many years. On their watch, Australians have come to spend more money on gambling than any other nation per capita, and we are home to 20% of the world's poker machines, half of which are in New South Wales. On their watch, Australians pay the highest electricity prices in the world. How good is coal? On their watch, Gina Reinhardt makes $2 million every hour and contributes only 2.85% of her overt $17 billion earned each year on tax. Over a century ago, Donald Horn wrote that Australia is a lucky country run by second-rate people who share in its luck, and that most of our leaders so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they're often taken by surprise. Sadly, nothing much has changed, and if anything, things have gotten worse. It's about time Australians elected better leaders to represent them, their interests, now into the future. Ancient media moguls shouldn't be running most of our media channels, and yet they are Australians should have the comfort of knowing that their rights are protected and enshrined by law, and that their federal politicians are kept accountable. But they're not. The Independence Cam podcast will attempt to compensate for the lack of curiosity and inspiration we see from our current leaders. We will host the greatest minds, discuss complex and often controversial topics that are necessary for our nation to debate so our country can progress and realise its true potential. In the Murdoch media vacuum, the Independence Can podcast will offer hope, inspiration, knowledge and expose some of the greatest challenges against some of the most exciting and innovative solutions to solve them. Our hosts and guests will be as diverse as the people of our nation. It's time Australians started to make their own luck. And it's time we stopped electing second-rate people to lead us. Welcome to the Independence Can podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Independence Can podcast. Today, Oliver and I are delighted to introduce our guest, Tim Buckley, who is the Director of Energy and Finance Studies for South Asia and Australia at the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis in Sydney. The Institute believes technology innovation is driving a global electricity market transformation involving energy efficiency, renewables, and a smart grid. This transition will require trillions of dollars of capital, making financial markets a critical element of its success. Tim has 30 years of experience in financial markets covering Australia, Asian, and global equities. Tim provides financial analysis in the electricity sector, studying energy efficiency and renewables across China and India, and stranded asset risk in Australia. Oliver and I were keen to invite Tim to be a guest on the podcast due to his expertise and ability to explain Australia's position in the energy transformation and what challenges we face, what potential we have to thrive, providing adequate leadership enables us to leverage this opportunity. So Tim, welcome to the Independence Camp podcast.
1: Thank you, Charlie, for having me.
0: So I'm going to quickly sneak in um, before I hand over to both yourself and Oliver, because I know you're both a lot more uh, experts in this area than I am. Um, But my layman understanding of the situation is this. Energy, raw materials and labour are the primary inputs necessary to produce most things that we consume in the economy. But companies are profiting from the difference between what consumers are willing to pay for a good and the cost to make it pretty basic economics 101 however i believe the problem is that um, companies have made all this profits because they've not been paying the true cost of production and as a as a world we've continued to trade in this false economy because the true carbon cost of production has been ignored and you know that's the carbon cost of say shipping raw materials or like iron ore to china and then buying it back in steel the carbon consequence or footprint of that transaction isn't incorporated to the final price So what inevitably happens is that the environment absorbs the carbon costs that we're refusing to account for, and we, the people, poorly served by our governments, are the ones that are paying the price. For me, the obvious fix is to address this false economy, um, is to put a global price on carbon. Uh, But corporations have influenced parliamentarians around the world to resist this, including countries like Australia, who appear to continue to elect very weak, greedy individuals into government. Uh, and resist every logical attempt to correct this false economy because it will likely hurt fossil fuel or coal companies the most. However, um, if we accurately uh, incorporated the cost of carbon into our markets um, and that this would be globally enforced, which is perhaps a challenge for another day, um, then what I assume we'd see is a global spike in demand for carbon-neutral energy sources. Is this a fair summary of the situation or have I perhaps oversimplified
1: No, I think that's uh, exactly spot on, Charlie. At the end of the day, it does come down to the fact that the fossil fuel industry exists primarily because they've been phenomenally successful at externalising their costs or large parts of their costs, particularly the carbon price, the carbon cost, as you said, and then internalizing profits and uh, I mean it's no coincidence that most fossil fuel companies are tax haven based they pay almost no corporate tax they get the diesel fuel rebate they get all sorts of government subsidies and handouts they then fail to do the rehabilitation of the projects that they claim that they will when they get their approvals to so legally they're obliged to do it but of course once they've made their profits they disappear back to their tax haven. And we, the consumer, the environment of Australia bears that cost. So ultimately, that's right. I mean, this whole idea that our um, incumbent uh, political leaders, dare I say, call them even a leader, but our political parties are captured by the fossil fuel interests because they don't want to bear the cost of doing business. Their costs of doing business. So they externalize that onto the environment and onto us, the taxpayers, and uh, they have huge resources, therefore to all the money that they're not paying in corporate tax they can use to uh, bribe our politicians through uh, donations, through lovely dinners and all sorts of other junkets and advertising support. And so ultimately, if we had a price on carbon, then we could leave it to the market to actually work out the least cost solution for Australia. But, of course, we don't have a free market. Energy has never been a free market. And uh, a price on carbon would be the easy solution. But, of course, the industry has made that toxic and the Murdoch Press has made it toxic because they are one and the same group of constituents.
2: So, Tim, just going back to that point, I mean, this relationship between the government and the fossil fuel industry, I suppose it's... um, Kind of comes out in this world of the, uh, and people talk about the Minerals Council, which is extraordinary. The Minerals Council seems to be supporting the only thing that is not a mineral, being the coal companies, because mineral uh, mineral industries should better should be better off if they can produce uh, green uh, green commodities, um, you know, or greenly produced other minerals, for example, other than fossil fuels. They'll be in a competitively stronger position, but. What, what is the real association? I know we hear it in the prime minister's department that there's people from the Minerals Council. We hear that there's this weird relationship with APRA and again, the government. Can you take people through how, uh, how you see this relationship and how it holds the government? The government's obviously meant to be talking and responsible to citizens who vote for them. But can you explain your understanding of the hold that uh, the the, this fossil fuel industry has over this government?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous issue that we have to address, but and whether we talk about the independence of the Australian media, whether we talk about the, uh, the fact the fossil fuel industry doesn't pay taxes, they don't shoulder their fair share, but they use all of that political power uh, to ensure they come out best. And so it's probably the Minerals Council is the peak body in Australia. It's one of the peak bodies in the world. And uh, the relationship between our federal government, both sides uh, of government and the Minerals Council and APIA makes the Minerals Council look amateurish. APIA is just, I mean, it's ruled by the ex-energy minister of Australia, 13 years in the energy minister. He gave APIA and APIA and all of its members enormous, like, hundreds of billions of dollars of tax um rebates and subsidies and now he gets paid i think the figure is close to a million bucks a year to sit in his ivory tower over at apia telling his um, minister mates how they should run the australian government for the benefit of his taxpaying constituents but the Minerals Council uh, there's been a concerted push by a number of environmental groups to try and break the nexus between our Australian government and the Minerals Council and they've all spectacularly failed because how do you break an industry that's based on gaining tens of billions of dollars of subsidies and external- externalizing as Charlie asked their cost of operation and so they've got way way too much money to actually the vested interest there are ridiculous so when uh, BHP was called to account for the fact that they claim they are um, agreeing with the scientists they accept the science of climate change BHP said that they accept the science of climate change they then got called out repeatedly because they're the number one funder of the minerals council and the minerals council has spent the last decade denying the science of climate change and so eventually bhp which tries to be a good corporate citizen in australia eventually said oh we will call the minerals council out we will try and make the minerals council accountable and to nip it in the bud they said oh we've just had the minerals council fire their ceo and so oh, the environmentalists are appeased for about a week until we find out that the ex-ceo of minerals council turns up as the chief of staff in the morrison government i think he ended up He went through about three different cabinet ministers and ended up now Chief of Staff in the Prime Minister's office. So he's gone from being the CEO of the Minerals Council to the CEO of Australia. And that was BHP holding the Minerals Council to account. Now BHP funds the Minerals Council $3.3 million a year, as does Rio, as does Glencore. They're the three largest uh, funders, annually funding $3 million a year to the Minerals Council. And the Minerals Council spends all of that money. Now their their budget is in the tens of millions of dollars and they're totally unaccountable. But on top of that, the Minerals Council has a body called Coal 21, which gets 8 cents a tonne of coal as a levy. So every tonne of coal produced in Australia pays the Minerals Council 8 cents per tonne and that is worth 25 million dollars a year and that money doesn't go to the minerals council it goes to their subsidiary coal 21 now they've changed the name because the environmentalists picked up on this major funding source 25 million dollars a year uh, going straight to a lobbyist and coal 21 was spending almost all of that not on research and development which is what coal 21 was set up supposedly to do but it in fact is spent on advertising and advertising that coal is good, as their advertising campaign um, was two years ago. So that's $25 million a year, totally outside the Liberal Party supposedly, totally outside of the National Party, but spent on funding of advertising. And it only goes to one purpose, to keep the LNP in federal government. So, I mean, that's just a tip of the iceberg when I talk about 25 million. It's nothing. Mm-hmm. APIA is getting $10 billion a year of royalty subsidies. So APIA makes the Minerals Council look like amateurs. Wow. It's
2: just extraordinary. I mean, you think about it. I mean, you know, a lot of these corporates wouldn't even give $3 million to uh, you know, the in any form of you know charitable causes, but they hand over willingly hundreds of millions of dollars to um to groups like uh, like this, who, as you say, are unaccountable, and then you heard the thought of a carbon tax. Of course, all the coal lobbies go crazy. Yet they're paying eight cents a tonne, what, just to to make sure that they can all uh, all advertise a little bit more. It uh, it never stops. But it isn't just this side of them getting money. They're actually not paying their um, you know any form of relevant royalty. Is true as uh, well, Tim, isn't isn't it? Because I mean, I don't know how the numbers, maybe you do have, but I thought Australia now exports more than uh, Qatar, but their sovereign wealth fund is, you know, receiving, I don't know how many billion per annum that they're going to be able to look after, um, uh, you know, their citizens in their retirement years. And uh, we would be getting less than, what, 10% of that a year for the same amount of gas that's being exported. Uh, Oliver,
1: I'd kill for 10%. Okay, about 3% Qatar gets uh, uh, the the official number and I haven't confirmed this externally, but a a senior tax consultant advised me of it 27 28 billion dollars a year of royalties go for use of the public gas assets of Qatar. 28 27 billion dollars a year goes into the sovereign wealth fund or into the government pocket in Australia. Um, I was quoted as saying the number's 800 million, so 3%, and then the tax expert called me out and said, no, that's actually not factually correct. It's a fraction of that because, in fact, that is the total amount that the federal government gets on offshore oil and gas. They get 800 million a year from oil, public oil, that the foreign tax haven-based fossil fuel companies extract, and they pay therefore zero for their offshore gas. And they probably will never pay any material royalties. Like we're talking about 20, 30, 40 years of royalty holidays in effect, because Josh Frydenberg has been so generous with taxpayers' money, building on the work that the Labor government did a decade before. So it's both sides of politics. ALP loves gas just as much as the LNP. The, unfortunately, the LNP also loves coal. They're, I mean, they're just fossil fuel Luddites, as uh, Malcolm Turnbull said, but we know what happens to Malcolm Turnbull every time he talks. So. <laughs> I mean, it's just the, the government of Australia is run by the Minerals Council and APIA, and let me just also join the dot. I mean, I, I and I think you both understand this, but it's critical we join the dots between the Minerals Council, our federal government, and the Murdoch Press, and also Fairfax, because... Who's the biggest advertiser in the AFR, the Australian Financial Review? I mean, you go through the top 10 advertisers, they're the 10 biggest fossil fuel companies in the world. So if anyone says, oh, but the AFR is not owned by Murdoch, no, but it's all of its advertising funding comes from fossil fuel companies. And the AFR is trying to be as right-wing climate denial Luddites as the Australian is. And so they have to move right every time Murdoch moves right so that they're seen, because the Sydney Morning Herald and the age supposedly cater for the Labor voters, the Liberal Party voters are funded or are got to through the Finn Review and the Australian. And so that incestuous circle where the Minerals Council and Coal 21 is spending millions, tens of millions of dollars every year on advertising goes straight into Rupert Murdoch's pocket. So who's the biggest climate science denier in the world? Rupert Murdoch.
2: Yep. And I can remember when I first started uh, working, I think it was the Murdochs who first said that they were going to become a carbon neutral newspaper back in, uh, I think it would have been about 87, I think was uh, was at that stage. Uh, lot, lot, long gone has, has that gone. I mean, you'd think that, you know, addressing fossil fuels or doing something about this is all climate related. But what you're saying, Tim, is, you know, almost bugger the climate. It's pure economics here. We as citizens are being grossly ripped off. For the natural resources of this country, which uh, supposedly we own, which uh, we're not getting our, right, uh, our fair share of, even if you ignored the climate change aspects of this, we're clearly just being grossly uh, uh, ripped off by, uh, by the current participants who have effectively got control of the asset, which is the nation's asset, by controlling the government. Is that yeah. the way to kind of basically look at it?
1: Absolutely. And, and again, I'll challenge you let's not ask for our fair share of the use if of public any share. Act. Sounds good, mate. Let's ask for 10%. <laughs> let's have one tenth of what we should get because one tenth will be about 20 times more than we're getting today. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll risk going into the numbers here, but. Um, Matt Canavan says there's no subsidies to coal other than the fact they pay no corporate tax. I mean, what other country company in Australia pays no corporate tax other than the fossil fuel industry? Oh, sorry, the healthcare industry. Both of them live off government subsidies. And so he says there's no subsidies, but what about corporate tax? That's a subsidy. I mean, so that's one. The second one is the diesel fuel rebate. Now, Matt Canavan will jump straight in on that one and go, but this is an off-road vehicle rebate. They're not driving their trucks on the road, but then that connection was removed 50 years ago. So before Matt Canavan was even born, the general purpose revenue coming in from the diesel fuel rebate was brought in. So for five years, it went to funding roads in Australia and they quite rightly weren't using the road. So the connection was... um, Evident for five years. For the last fifty years, it just goes straight into uh, general revenues for the government. Now, the coal industry, the mining industry, gets a three billion dollar a year diesel fuel rebate, and within that, one billion of it goes to the coal industry. Now. Uh, Matt Canavan will be very quick to say I'm attacking farmers because the farmers get a scarrick of a, a rebate because their vehicles use get the diesel fuel rebate as well. So what I would suggest is we ask for a, a means testing of the diesel fuel rebate. Let's have the first $100 million of subsidy per entity tax free. Just let's give Glencore the first 100 million. Why? because Glencore is getting about $400 million a year, so let's get them on the last $300 million. There will not be a single farmer who needs more than $100 million exemption, so let's give an exemption to the small guys, right, the people who really need it, our farmers, and then say to... Let's have a means test that caps it at $100 million... We can only give Glencore $100 million subsidy a year. I dare Matt Canavan to respond to that because... What, like, there's only 10 companies to have more than $100 million a year, and that's Glencore, that's BHP, that's Rio, that's Fortescue, that's uh, Gina Reinhart, and so on. It's, it's all the billionaires and all the fossil fuel companies. So let's hit the 10 guys who pay no corporate tax and they pay no diesel fuel rebate, they get the 100% diesel fuel rebate, let's make them pay a little bit of their fair share and But at the end of the day, I mean, the the Australian government actually had the hide to put in a report to the OECD 10 years ago saying that Australia had no fossil fuel subsidies. The OECD rejected that outright and said, you have used a different version of the definition of subsidy to the one we use in the rest of the world. And according to Scott Morrison, there are no diesel fuel subsidies, there are no corporate tax holidays. There is no royalty rebates, blah, blah, blah. None of those are defined by the Reserve Bank or the uh, Productivity Commission because the Australian government sets the definitions and then tells them to report to the OECD. Now, the OECD just rejects that outright and says Australia is a laggard A prior. And finally, thanks to the election of President Biden and the uh, excellent ambition we're seeing in Korea, Japan, and China, combined with the EU, all of a sudden the global imperative to actually act on the science of climate change is the number one issue in 2021. So I don't believe Australia can keep remaining a laggard. I don't think Scott Morrison can do that in the face of President Biden and uh, his US climate envoy, John Kerry. I think the conversations there will be brutally honest and Australia will kowtow to our uh, military masters in America. And so that will change the debate dramatically leading up to the COP26. But uh, at the end of the day, they will use semantics and greenwash to try and avoid any responsibility or any pain for their fossil fuel brethren.
2: So, Tim, just if I could, just to summarise that, because I'm learning bits and pieces here and I thought I was pretty good in the industry. But, um, you know, what you're saying is quite clearly that you completely agree and concur that, um, you know, effectively, the nation is being um, ripped off blind for its resources, right, is it is one scenario and effectively maybe we should have, you know, a Royal Commission or a review to see what's fair, you know, what's fair and equitable, what, what, what are other countries do and is Australia an outlier in relation to what our citizens get vis-a-vis every other citizen, that's one question, the other In fact, you actually point out, which I thought that there was a nexus as the reason the fuel rebate was provided was because if it was being driven on non-public roads, they weren't damaging them. You were saying that nexus went over 50 years ago. It's all hypothecated revenue. Uh, it's the same for everybody. There is no nexus between uh, off-road and on-road when it comes around to the fuel rebate. It's just uh, a tax that was there and these guys say, well, we don't want to pay that tax. It's a bit like, you know, the GST's brought in and these guys are saying, oh, well, hang on, we just don't want to pay GST because, you know, bad luck we're fossil fuel companies. And then I must say, I wasn't aware uh, of the, um, again, deceivious nature, but I guess we see that with things like the unemployment rate, where we uh, obviously know that you're fully employed if you're working more than one day, one hour a week, because we changed the definition of what full employment is, which is uh, to work for one hour a week. They changed the definition of subsidies as well, so they can walk around head up high saying they're not subsidizing uh, the fossil fuel industry by using a a definition which uh, basically you would only find relevant on Mars. Um, would that be that? be a pretty summary of what we should take out of those few points?
1: Yeah, or maybe Saudi Arabia or Brazil or Russia. Right, I mean, they're, they're our Australian peers these days. Um, but let me pick up on one point. You mentioned royalties and, and we were talking, I shifted the narrative to discuss oil and gas, offshore oil and gas. The one area where the coal industry does actually carry a fair burden is on the royalties that go to the New South Wales and Queensland governments. Uh, So I will call that out. They do pay about a 7% royalty in New South Wales and in Queensland for thermal coal. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that 7% because it's actually a lot stronger in Queensland, um, but they do pay it and it's on revenue, not profits. Anyone can, any good accountant can doctor the accounts to make sure you make no profit. Oh, that's right. Yang Cole's never made a profit for a decade. Whitehaven never made a profit. So they pay zero corporate tax. So the two biggest coal companies, independent coal companies, Australia, have not paid a cent of corporate tax to the federal government in the last six years. Now, when they get EY, another um, service provider that is absolutely covered in coal money. uh, So EY does a report which says, let's look at the revenues that the governments of Australia get from the coal industry. And so they lump in royalties with corporate tax. They can't get away from the coal royalties. So they lump that in and say, oh, aren't we great? We actually do pay a couple of billion bucks of royalties a year. but You pay no corporate tax. Oh, we've changed the rules. We're reporting on how much tax we pay to the governments, not the government, not the federal government, because if you asked us the right question, how much corporate tax do we pay, the answer would be zero. Now, but then if you divide zero tax and zero profit, you'll you'll get they're paying a fair share. In other words, it's because they can use accounting to make sure they pay no tax in Australia because they make no reported profits in Australia. In my view, uh, energy companies operating who in of tax havens, in my view, should be charged a percent of revenue for corporate tax, work out what the percent of revenue that Wes Farmers pays Now, okay, it's not a percent of profit, but you find an equivalent company, and I pick Wesfarmers because they every year pay 30 cents in the dollar corporate tax. That's the beauty of franking. Franking credits encourage Australian domiciled companies to pay their fair share of tax, but foreign companies don't get any benefit from franking, so therefore they'd pay no corporate tax. But just finishing, sorry, I've gone around in a circle there, coming back to coal royalties, as a percent of revenue, you can't get around it. You ship coal out of New South Wales, you pay 7 cents in the dollar of revenue to the government. Now they tried getting around it by shipping it off to Singapore, which is a tax haven. Um, And so all of the coal companies had Glencore in particular, Rio and BHP had similar structures. You might recall about five years ago, BHP ended up having to pay $500 million of back taxes because they were channeling profits through a tax haven. And they, they ended up confirming that and paying out just tip of the iceberg to the ATO. But um, anyway, the royalty. So in New South Wales, the royalty is $3 billion a year, give or take. It's actually a very sizable amount of money. In Queensland, it's better. It's up to $4 billion because they have a sliding scale, which says you get 7% of revenues up to 10, up to $100 a tonne, Aussie. For the next $50, you pay 12.5% incremental royalty and above $150 a ton, you pay 15%. So the Queensland government uh, gets $4 billion a year in a good year from coking coal royalties. They get a skerrick from the thermal coal, but it's 80, 90% of their revenue comes from coking coal. Uh, but that then means the Queensland government, it's an ALP government, but they're just as beholden to the coal industry as the LNP is in federally, because that's their number one revenue outside of GST, which comes via the federal government. So unfortunately, whether you look at it at the state or the federal level, the coal industry does pay royalties in New South Wales and Queensland, and so therefore they have a ridiculous amount of power, and uh, we saw that with the uh appointment of Malcolm Turnbull as the climate chair for Matt Keane, so the the greenest liberal MP in Australia. And uh, John Barilabo, two days later, goes out for lunch, goes off to the football with the Minerals Council, the New South Wales Mining Council, I'm sure was in there behind the scenes somewhere. And two days later, John Barilabo sacks Malcolm Turnbull because he mentioned the C word. He mentioned a coal mining expansion moratorium. And he was appointed the climate minister, not the coal minister. And so, uh, you know, he got sacked.
2: <laughs> it never stops, does it? it never stops. Uh, it's
1: pathetic. The, the federal government, the state governments, they're owned by the fossil fuel industry. It is absolutely pathetic. And but the then- only way I can even talk about it is because we get no government funding. We get no corporate funding. I've got no clients. We're paid for to be a public interest think tank to combat the bullshit that comes out of the Minerals Council and API and um, that's why philanthropy funds aifa because uh, we can actually speak truth to it and uh, anyone who actually had a paying client would get sacked immediately
0: I, I feel like this this sort of robbery that that we're discussing um because this is what it is and it's mo- it is robbery from generations to come right um but it's it's even worse than all of the horrendous stuff we've just talked about because I've done a little bit of research just recently on because uh, I'm doing an international law master's around the conceptual exploration of legal personality uh, to nature. So, you know, and there was a move to protect the Great Barrier Reef to give it its own legal personality so it can be completely separate from the government and and basically protect itself. What happened and what is sustained, like has sort of happened across state and federal is um, underfunding or cutting of funding of jobs, say, for the Environmental Defenders Office. So they were primarily the ones that were trying to do this work, this really important legal work. Um, And they were completely that the funding was completely cut. So there's job cuts that we're seeing, not just in any sort of any work that even attempts to challenge the status quo as it is today. but worse still, the fact that they have purposely designed or prohibited the us embracing uh, our rightful place in this, this transition to the green economy because one of their most favourite sort of call to arms is jobs. We must protect jobs. I know it's, um, Matt, Matt kind of adds one of his most favourite things to talk about is the coal mining jobs. But what I would really like to get your insight in is how many jobs are not being created because we, our government remains in the pockets of a very comparatively small number of corporations and individuals who are not willing to give up their free riding, not willing to give up the the profits that come specifically to them. And as a consequence, Australian economy, the jobs for the future, jobs for our children aren't sort of coming to fruition. And what kind of economic impact is that having?
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's where they will come unstuck because I think the narrative has finally shifted in Australia because we've realised that the cost of inaction is now so much higher than the cost of action. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it, there's a by-election going on in the Hunter Valley. So all of the... Um, Both sides, all three parties, the Liberals, the Nationals and the ALP are busy defending coal and the right for coal miners to have a job. The job today is far more important than intergenerational equity. It's far more important. Right. And, um, of course, solar workers are not unionised. So the ALP is as bad as the um, LNP when it comes to that because solar is a non-unionised. So the CFMEU gets no members. And if you go and talk to the CFMEU, they only serve their stakeholders, their members, their members today, not their members in 10 years' time, their members today. And yeah. so the CFMEU, and I, I keep saying it, the ALP is almost as bad. I mean, it's almost impossible to be as bad as the LMP federally, but the ALP is pretty spineless on this. And um, that's the problem that the, the CFMEU calls the shots there. And the job today is far more important than intergenerational equity you talk about the rights of the great barrier reef i mean you you, you missed out one point that Josh Frydemberg threw in $448 million, I think the number was, to fund the Great Barrier Reef Marine Conservation Society or whatever they're called. Now, then have a look at who are the board members of that. I mean, 448000000 million, I'll probably get the number wrong because it just makes me mad, thinking how much of our tax... I mean, how many hospitals could we have funded? How many women's shelters could we have funded with $448 million? But no, we gave it to a board with no business plan, no mandate, and the board is stacked with all the big CEOs and chairmen of all the fossil fuel companies in Australia so they can have their annual six-star junket on Dunk Island to talk about how great the Barrier Reef was when they were young, because it won't be there for their children, but we, the taxpayer, get to fund it. So not only did they defund the EDO, the Environmental Defender's Office, as you say, and I'm a huge fan of them, they are there to actually represent Australians, but how dare the government fund the importance of the Great Barrier Reef? They're only interested in their fossil fuel funders. So even that is just about having taxpayer funded junkets in the Great Barrier Reef while it's still there by all the CEOs and chairs of the big fossil fuel companies. It's that incestuous. It is. I mean, but anyway, don't get me started. A job in a coal mine is far more important than 500 jobs anywhere else. As the Australia Institute says, there are probably what, 20, 30,000 mining jobs in Australia, but there are 10 million jobs in the whole country, but those 20,000 jobs are far more important than anyone else. Right. And Matt Cannon will die in a ditch fighting you on that point.
2: And, that, and those jobs are, are going, uh, Tim, and uh, I must say, we're going to have to have you on regularly, because anytime we want to get fired up, we'll get you back out here. But, um, you know, this this conflict of interest that exists between the level of subsidies that the states get, I mean, this is it, it is all through the whole fossil transition issue, right? I mean, I was in, in France, you know, and it's funny to say that, but it kind of feels like ages ago when you're overseas, but I was at a a conference there, and it was a ministerial conference and it was kind of an internal one, and the fight between the French Ministry um, uh, of the Treasury Department and the uh, Clean Energy Department was extraordinary just over this transition to electric cars, because Treasury was so worried about the loss of fuel revenue for the state, as a result of a change to electric cars that they couldn't get their mind out That I mean, they're conflicted in their action on climate change and um but but what i'm seeing here is it's okay let's be really dumb let's be conflicted in our actions but let's not do anything but fundamentally coal is going anyway so they're going to lose that revenue stream so when are they going to wake up and and you know i'd like this kind of you to give us a few discussions of this but, but first of all when are they going to wake up and realize that that you know certainly thermal coal is as good as that revenue that new south wales is going to be getting from thermal coal is 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 a dead duck uh, where are they going to replace it? And, and you know, we hear this kind of mantra that comes out from, you know, both parties. L- Labor says it because they don't want to say anything too bad about the coal industry because otherwise, you know, they'll get sacked and smashed in the Murdoch press. So Whoever will go and smash them. They say, you know, coal will be here for years to come. But actually, there's a, first of all, there's a big exposure to to, to, con- to countries and, and, and states that are assuming that's the case because they're going to find a huge revenue shortfall. But is coal really going to be there for years to come, particularly particularly thermal coal and and increasingly, you know from what I'm seeing on the hydrogen numbers, if Siemens and those guys are right, uh, hydrogen's going to come down the the throat of uh, even coking coal pretty fast, a bit faster than what people anticipating. Can you talk us through that that and and, and how they should be looking at this issue rather than how they are looking at this issue?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues there. But yes, I call thermal coal dead man walking, right? From a finance perspective, it is dead. It is game over. Like you cannot get financing. You cannot get insurance. You can't get debt or equity for a new coal project, a new coal power plant, a new coal mine, a new coal port, a coal railway line. And in fact, you couldn't have got it in the last five years anywhere in Asia if it wasn't for the Japanese, the Koreans and the Chinese providing government capital subsidies. So every time Matt Canavan goes, oh, look how many new coal-fired power plants have been built up in Asia in the last five years? I would respond by saying, how many of those were funded by the Japanese government or the Korean government or the Chinese government? And in fact, 92% of them were. So without government subsidies, coal was never the cheap source of electricity, even five years ago, which is the mantra from the industry that Matt Canavan parrots like a good parrot. He parrots that it is the cheapest source of power for the emerging markets, the poor people of Asia, because Matt Canavan serves the poor people of Asia. We know that. Um, Okay, the um, George Christensen probably does, but anyway, let's not go there. (laughs) Um, So what he ignores is the fact that coal is not cheap, even excluding all of the externalities that uh, Charlie mentioned you cannot build a coal-fired power plant and there is not a coal-fired power plant in Asia. I dare Matt Canavan to actually answer that question. Name one coal-fired power plant built anywhere in Asia in the last five years without government funding. And so therefore it is not the cheapest source of capital. The only reason private capital comes in is that they piggyback on the de-risking that the governments make. So. Um, Let's have a look at how far, I mean, again, people go, as you said, coal's going to be used for decades and decades to come. So we we should procrastinate. We shouldn't have a plan. We shouldn't plan for that at all. In America, coal consumption dropped 25% last year. There's nothing orderly about the world's second largest coal producing and consuming nation dropping 25% in one year. Now, by the way, it's dropped 60% in one decade. It's down another 10% this year. So there's no dead cap bounce. It's just dropping at 25% decline per annum. It'll be gone in three or four years. And in fact, that's exactly what the merchant banks of America, of Wall Street, are now saying coal will be gone from the power industry in America before the end of this decade. So we could talk about one decade, every single job will be gone. So that's only 10%, 20% of the jobs gone every year. Not growth. There's no growth involved. There's not been a single dollar invested in a new coal-fired power plant in America in the last decade. And there's not a single dollar even proposed to go into a new coal-fired power plant in America.
2: So, Tim, take me uh, take me to, to task here because I'm going to be the old man canavan and I'm going to challenge you on that. Well, look, you know, those governments up there, they're being sensible. What they want to do is they want to have cheaper power in uh, in Asia, that's why they're building all those coal fired power stations and we're not building them in Australia and we're not benefiting from the beautiful clean coal that we could have in Australia, they are, that's one thing and secondly the US transition is just caused by the shift to good old gas, so my, my gas buddies are still going to end up making a bucket load of money in the US and it's really gas that is removing coal. Cole there, and uh, and mate, if you if you're so right, why is Adani continuing with its train line? You know, Adani's going ahead full steam. So, so uh, you know, I, I call you bullshit, Tim. Come on, let, let let's let's hear your answers to uh, to those three.
1: Okay, the U.S. market. Name the worst performing sector in the U.S. stock market in the last decade. I'll give you a hint. It's got two letters. They're both the same.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, um, yeah, it uh, could be. So
1: Exxon share price down 30% in the last decade. The US market's up 150% in the same decade. So investing in US gas is an absolute wealth hazard. And let's ask BHP how much they've written off on their US gas exposures in the last decade, almost every cent that they've invested. So we now know, and BlackRock is the biggest climate conversion we've had uh, this decade, BlackRock now talks about the tsunami of capital that's flowing to low emissions, ESG, environmental, social and governments rated funds, low carbon emissions, BlackRock. Larry Fink talks about it every day as much as I do. And so I like having BlackRock on my side because for a decade they're the biggest investor in the world in fossil fuels. That changed a year ago and um, I think they've gone all in on that. But we could talk about the biggest company in the world, BlackRock. I actually like talking about them because they only manage, I don't know, 12 trillion Aussie dollars of capital. And that means they own every single listed company in Australia, every single bank in Australia, every single insurance company. And they're telling every board member of those companies, don't you dare do what your government's telling you. Don't listen to your Prime Minister. We're the biggest shareholder. You have a fiduciary duty to serve your shareholders. You will do what we say. And what we say is we want you to show us a very detailed path to net zero within 10, 20 or 30 years. So we might give you 20 years if you're lucky. Um, at the moment, we're talking about net zero by 30, but by 2050. So that's 29 years from now. But by the way, India gets a free pass. They've got 30 years. You've got 20, maybe 10. And what's Macquarie working towards Macquarie Group, the big capitalist down at Macquarie, 2040 net zero. And so I think what, what I've seen in the last year is that the date of 2050 has been fixated on by Korea and Japan and America and Europe, but now the financial organizations around the world are going, yeah, but we know what's happened. We've just moved a decade in one year Now we're going to move another decade in 2021, and we'll end up at the end of 2021 talking about net zero for the OECD by 2040. And that's why Twiggy Forest is getting a decade ahead of everyone by going, we're going net zero by 2030. Now, if we talk about greenwash, I would have called Glencore one of the biggest greenwashers in the world for the last decade. They're certainly one of the biggest stooges in Australia, paying zero corporate tax. Oh, that's right. Sorry, they paid 10000 bucks to get off Michael West's Um, top 40 hit list because if you paid $40,000 or $10,000 you you have paid something doesn't matter that they earn $20 billion of revenue Uh, but anyway so Glencore two years ago said they were totally agnostic one of the world's biggest coal producers one of the world's biggest thermal coal producers they were going to ignore the TCFD they were going to ignore BlackRock they were going to ignore every other investor and they were going going to keep producing coal the trouble is the TCFD is now virtually mandatory because BlackRock's told everyone it's voluntary, but we can't invest in you unless you do implement the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures. So all of a sudden, the TCFD is now mandatory for every board in Australia, like it is for every board in the world. And so all of a sudden, all of these directors have got a fiduciary duty to actually deal as their shareholders tell them. So what did Glencore announce a year ago? That they were going to do net zero by 2050. Now, the interesting thing is they went further than BHP and Rio and they said, we're going net zero on scope one, two and three, which means we will be totally out of coal by 2050. Hang on a sec. They're the largest private coal company in the world. And they've told all their shareholders a year ago, they're gonna be out of coal by 2050. Now, Matt Canavan still has a leg, to, one leg to stand on for now because they said, oh, by the way, we're gonna be out of coal in Colombia by 2034. We'll be out of South African coal as soon as we can because we lose money every day over there. So we'll close that within this decade. Australia will their last coal producing state. They have three exposures, South Africa, Colombia, and Australia. So they're going to exit Colombia they're going to exit South Africa so by 2035 their whole global coal production will be down 40 percent on 2019 levels that's their own mission statement that's the commitment they've made to BlackRock to get BlackRock off their back to deliver on the TCFD and they said 40 percent by 2030 that's a that's a shoe-in they can do that no problem uh, by the way it dropped 20 percent in one year last year And then they said, we'll go to zero by 2050. So Australia's single biggest coal company, thermal coal company, Glencore, will be out of coal by 2050. So I don't know who's going to be employing Matt Canavan in 2051. Because what we do know is that this, that pledge will probably move a decade within, I don't know, Ivan Glasenberg will retire and um, the new CEO will have to talk to his shareholders. I imagine that conversation will be pretty brief. And then he'll spin the coal assets off and Glenn um ivan glasenberg will privatize them and he'll run them for profit out of his tax haven would be my guess but glencore will be out of coal within a couple of years would be my guess
2: okay so uh, so uh, you're clearly uh, you're clearly saying that all those foreign governments made those decisions probably a while ago and are completely out of the money in any of those investments that they've currently made in terms of you know, the idea of building more coal that's just um that's dinosaur thinking the market's already passed them and blackrock is um this uh, is a black rock, black uh, is, is clearly um is clearly making that uh, making that call very clearly that um that uh, the people making those decisions are wrong and as in relation to coal being over the idea of years to come. Well, it isn't years to come. It's years that are totally visible. Most sensible companies are getting out. You know, it's a bit like the tobacco industry. It went on for years, but there were always a rump of rotten hedge funds or people who would continue to invest in the dying industry. You may see a bit of that going on, but it isn't really going to be a wealth creation industry. It'll just be the usual hand down of a good asset to a broker company who then goes broke themselves and hands all the liabilities to the state because that's the normal requirement isn't it, is the way that it uh, works very clearly is that you uh, you, uh, you have a, a BHP, they sell it to a Glencore, Glencore sells it to then somebody else and when it's just got a little bit of revenue left and they probably go bust and they leave all the liabilities to the state.
1: Did you say Terracom?
2: No, I didn't say them. No, no, I don't use uh, people's names on podcasts. You never know what could happen. Um, Charlie, what? what yeah, you yeah, had a quick question uh, there?
0: Well, I was just going to ask, you know, if you were uh, Energy Minister... Uh, for Australia? And what would you be doing? What would be the say the first four things that you would do uh, to improve our standing currently?
1: So on day one, I would say that I bring in a hundred million dollar cap to the diesel fuel rebate. And I'll have 10 companies who'll bitch about it. They'll be the 10 richest companies in Australia that pay collectively, the Australian companies pay tax. So I then call them out and say, okay, let's put a cap on, $100 hundred million dollars. Not a single farmer is affected, not a single fisherman's affected, just the ten biggest companies in Australia. And I'd make that immediate today and then I'd ratchet it down ten percent per annum or one hundred percent per annum depending on the political will. But uh, I'd just do it for the, the, theatre at hundred million dollars So we'll just give Twiggy hundred million dollars and he can pay the next three hundred so hundred million dollar um, subsidy to Twiggy and to Gina Um, let's see how the Murdoch press spins that one secondly I would bring in a rule that any company operating in Australia using public assets or relying on government subsidies has to pay corporate tax in Australia I would level the playing field so that we are not crippling the competitiveness of Australian companies and so let's lift the. I mean this is a Singapore concept Singapore I lived in Singapore for, for a couple of years, 20 years ago, and the local residents, I was just laughing, saying, oh, I was paying 15% personal tax. And my staff were laughing at me, they're going, we pay 2% tax. And that's positive discrimination. In other words, it's not discrimination against the foreigners. I was happy to be paying only 15, because I was paying 55 in Australia. Uh, but anyway, so I'd bring in a rule that either foreign corporates who operate in Australia Play by Australian tax rules. I would require them to have Australian directors and the Australian director has to be a passport holder in Australia. Like they can't just be an Indian who has come out, like, namely Adani's three Indian people who sign the accounts that don't actually even visit Australia. They've actually got to be residents of Australia. They've actually got to be Australian. I don't care where they're from. Everyone's an immigrant except for our first owners, first um owners in Australia, so we're all immigrants, it's nothing racist. I just want anyone operating in Australia to play by Australian rules. Now, if Facebook wants to piss off, let them, but they won't, let them pay some tax. But then you can't say it's the tax on profit because we know that they employ the four big accounting firms to make sure they make no profits in Australia. So you make it a percent of revenue, you get them to sign a tax declaration on ethics. That the australian directors personally are liable they're signing on behalf of their company that they're paid for and they will have a charter that says that they will pay their fair share of taxes or maybe 70 percent of their fair share let's not cripple them with paying a whole 100 percent of what they should have paid let's just make it 70 that would be about 70 times what they're paying today so all of a sudden I'm Josh Frydenberg, I've actually got, I don't know, about $50 billion a year to play with. I could start paying off some of the debt that Josh has racked up over the last two years. That's right, Josh actually introduced a, um, didn't he get us back to surplus?
2: Uh, it wasn't for very long, and I don't think he ever quite got there. I think he got to getting towards potentially seeing it as long as no one spent anything on NDIS, I think it was right, as long as you to keep your surplus. It was a, it was a great, a great exercise. but. Um, but mind you, again, as you know, in terms of wonderful accounting, uh, you can obviously have a surplus, but you can still rack up national debt at, a, at an absolutely horrific clip, as is what we've seen in this place. The national debt is uh, uh, is exploding, but we're not allowed to talk about that. And of course, no, uh, no 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 banks who wants to hold onto their financial license will be able to talk about that as we head towards the budget, and no company who doesn't want to fund their uh, their job seeker payments uh, recalled by um, the government will talk anything uh, anything like that in relation to when the budget comes up, that'll all be uh, sworn to uh, to silence. So we've got two of them. Uh, we've got two, so, so, got, so that's got... almost like a revenue tax. It's a bit like the AMT in the US. I mean, you used to have an AMT, alternative minimum tax, which was guys, look, if you're a big company and it's all just too complicated for you, uh, we don't mind, don't bother calculating how much your uh, your profit is. Um, it's called an alternative minimum tax. And yeah, sure, I was 33 on your revenue, Uh, um, 33 is on your profit but if it's too complicated for you there's an alternative minimum tax where you just pay 10 on uh, on on your revenue or something that was i think in the u.s they just have that alternative so if it's all too difficult for you but you're going to have to pay
1: up and benchmark it against what an australian company is paying yeah because it's all about making a level playing field because we all love a free market right i mean josh fernberg loves a free market yeah, it's got to be, to got to be a economy. free
2: and fair market where uh, where one you know the poor old Aussie company isn't crippled just because they're in Australia and encouraged to go overseas because that's what tends to happen. If you're profitable, you have to move overseas because uh, that's the only way you can compete against your foreign competitors who operate in Australia and rip all the money out through wonderful arrangements like transfer pricing and uh, royalties on brands and trademark deals—a whole variety of uh, yeah wonderful scams that we're all good at at uh, at, at how you uh, how you avoid uh, paying tax in Australia. It's um. It's a it's a, it's a it's a
1: national sport or has been for years. So that's two. Yep. Um, well, I think one would have to be you'd have to stop the revolving door between industry lobbyists and our government offices and from our ministers straight into lobbyists. So I would say not a one and a half year. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sure McFarland's getting a massive 100,000, multi-hundred thousand dollar pension every year from us on top of his million bucks a year he gets from apia so we should say no revolving door if you've been the energy minister you can't go and work for the energy sector that you were supposedly legislating on just like you can't go straight to the defence industry so no lobbyists no revolving doors um okay uh, that would be and, and any incumbent lobbyist sitting in the prime minister's office pulling the strings sorry you've actually got to go back to the minerals council so just cut those lobbyist revolving doors. Um, I'd probably, I mean, I'm pretty passionate about freedom of speech in Australia. And I think we should have Australian, return to Australian ownership of Australian media. So rather than weakening Australian media every year, I'm with the, uh, who's it, Nilsson's um, sponsorship of journalism in Australia, somehow we've got to get the quality of journalism back up to where it was 20, 30 years ago. That means they actually have to be paid a living wage to do public interest research, which means they've got to have a charter of rights that they actually sign. Oh, sorry, that's right. I don't think Nine Network signed it. But um, anyway, so... Freedom of speech, ownership in Australia of Australian media, and I'd bring in again concentration of control rules to prevent someone having 70% of all the print media in Australia and then sitting in a tax haven offshore, namely Rupert. But I mean it's almost as bad the Fairfax has been allowed to merge with Channel 9. So you'd have to force a progressive unwind of that and maybe stop the billionaires owning all of our media. Um, sorry, I'll stop going on about that. So, freedom of press, we need investigative journalists with spine who can hold our government to account. And then I'll, I'll risk another two if I could. Federal, federal ICAC. I mean, we've got to get the corruption out of our federal government, and there's no more corruption. I mean, the coal industry is corrupt. There's no other word for it, whether it's in India, whether it's in Indonesia or Australia or America, coal equals corruption, it's all about using public assets for private foreign gain and leaving all the mess behind for the future generations so. you've really got to have a federal ICAC that can actually dig into what's going on, because they've got so much money you're up against it there's no way NGOs running on the smell of naughty rag can keep the um, keep them honest. So actually requiring our parliamentarians to actually uphold the law, um, having the right to enforce the law on them. And then the final one, the thing that Malcolm Turnbull just got um, sacked over, we need a moratorium. Like we've got John Kerry, the climate ambassador for America, our military master is telling us coal is dead. Abandon coal now or face Catastrophe is the headline from the Fin Review, from the Sydney Morning Herald in April, this this month. So um, let's actually listen to what the Americans are now saying. They're saying coal is dead. Let's actually start planning for it. Now we are the world's biggest exporter of coal. It's in our interest to maximise the life of our existing production. I'm not calling for the end of coal today. I'm calling about let's actually have a planned um, transition. So what I would say is no new coal mines. In fact, no new fossil fuel project full stop. And then let's actually have an orderly plan to exit the existing ones because what that does, we're the world's biggest supplier. We don't wanna flood the world with too much supply as demand's collapsing. It's gonna collapse anyway. Let's have an orderly retreat so that we can actually have some profits left for the next decade as we orderly phase out the use of that product as fast as practical. So that does not, I work on BHP's Mount Arthur mine. They can't sell it. There's no buyer left. They've been trying to sell it now for two years. They tried to sell it to Adani. He said it wasn't worth 20 cents in the dollar, what they wanted. They refused it. And then a year later, they wrote it down by 80 cents in the dollar, and that's now worth 20, and he's no longer interested. So uh, that's how far Adani's moved on coal. He's all about solar, he's all about renewables, he's all about zero emissions industries of the future. And he just, Hates the fact he ever heard the name Australia a decade ago. But I'll sneak that in about Still building that
2: railway line though, Tim. Is it going to get there? What's your prediction? Are we going to see a trainload of coal coming out of the Galilee Basin? Yeah, we will,
1: unfortunately. Um, So the British government had been negotiating with Katamadani to make a coal exit statement going into COP26. I still think that's highly probable. But Katamadani was asked, can you walk away from the Galilee mine as your... um, as your big offer, as well as a phased closure of all your coal-fired power plants. Gautama agreed with all of it, but he said, I can't close the coal mine. It's already 80% built or 70% built and I've sunk 5 billion bucks into this loss-making asset that, sorry, loss-making liability. I can't get any insurance for it. I can't get any finance for it. I can't sell it, no one will buy it. But unfortunately, I'm gonna be using coal back in India for the next 10, 20 years in power plants that I've already built. So I'll buy, I'll build it, I'll do a 10 million tonne per annum mine, I'll run it for the next 10 years, and then I'll close it down when when it's cheaper to replace all of that with solar. Uh, So at the end of the day, that's unfortunately the problem. He spent $5 billion building a loss-making business that he can't sell and it's got no future. It'll never make money for anyone. So it's a Pyrrhic victory for him it was going to be 60 million tons a year for 90 years now he'll be lucky if it's 10 million tons for 10 years he'll make no money on it and then he'll lose a whole lot of money on the way out but uh, at the end of the day he's got a coal port that he bought for two billion dollars 10 years ago that's running at 55 utilization he's got to put coal through that for as long as he possibly can so it's not about making money on the coal mine it's about making money on the coal port that he bought mistakenly and now can't sell so they That whole Adani project is a stranded asset. It's the epitome of a stranded asset. I mean, he's put five billion bucks in and he'll never get a cent back on it. So that is to me the perfect definition of a stranded asset. He should never have built it. And I'm sure he'll be the first to admit that if he had his brothers again, he would never come to Australia. He'd much rather have never heard of it and he wish he'd never met Jeff Sini or (laughs) uh, Campbell Newman because he'd be 5 billion bucks. Uh, Actually he wouldn't be. He'd have 5 billion bucks cash in his pocket, but he's been growing that cash at about a hundred percent every two years and for a decade. So now it'll be worth about 40 or 50 billion bucks if he'd invested in Indian solar or Indian grid assets. So um, the opportunity cost for him has been extreme. He's now Close to the richest man in India, his wealth went up by, I don't know, 30 billion US dollars last year. How much did he lose in Australia? Hmm.
2: Well, maybe you can make him lose that extra five billion, I reckon, when he's got that much money. Nothing, nothing like knocking a little bit more off. Yeah, The problem is he hasn't got any income in Australia to
1: suck up the tax losses. He's got, and he tried building some solar assets in Australia to soak up that tax losses exactly as you said we put that proposal to him he did it he proposed he was going to spend one and a half billion bucks building 1.5 gigawatts of solar and then josh josh Frydenberg, it probably was josh or angus taylor one of the two changed brought in the mlf i mean marginal loss factors Overnight Adani's solar projects in Australia were loss making and Adani said no buddy way I've already f- I've fallen for Australian rules once I'm not falling a <laughs> second time and so he walked away from his solar he was going to he was going to be the biggest developer of solar in Australia it took him one year to realize that uh, Angus Taylor was going to screw him any way he could and any other investor in renewables.
0: Oh, it's just extraordinary I feel like we needed have to have you back on. Um, because there's so much more to cover I mean we didn't really get into hydrogen or biomass there's so much in this sort of energy transition uh, that that I think it's really important for people to understand but at the same point it's also really important that people have a, a genuine understanding of how much we're being ripped off and and the extent of theft and the impact that's gonna have on many, many generations to come because of this corrupt lot that we've got in now and their only interest in themselves. I mean, just even hearing that they prohibited this investment in solar, for for what gain besides their own narratives? It's just, it beggars belief. So I really do appreciate uh, you coming on board and we will absolutely have you back on soon because I think that there is a wealth of knowledge that we're yet to tap.
1: Charlie, let me risk going on. I'll finish on a positive note because I am actually very, very optimistic and the last hour has probably suggested otherwise. But um, Australia is a global laggard. At the same time, we are a world leader. Like at the end of the day, consumers in Australia are sick of being screwed by Angus Taylor. And so they're taking responsibility for their own actions into their own hands. Australia is installing more rooftop solar than anywhere else in the world per capita. And it grew 30, 40% last year. It's up another 30% year-to-date this year. And that is all about the consumer in Australia understanding that Angus Taylor is not their friend. He is not looking after their interests. And so 25 million Australians or all the rich Australians who can afford to look after their own interests are going effectively self-production. And then they'll build a whole lot of batteries in their carports. They'll have their electric vehicles, whether... um, Scott Morrison likes them or not, we will have them because that's how you charge your house, so the world and Australia is actually on the cusp of an inevitable technology driven finance driven transformation and it will happen, it will happen far faster than anyone thinks possible. I've been saying that now for eight years at IEFA and every year I'm surprised at the speed of change. I might be the global bull, but I'm surprised every day that I turn my computer on and I find what's happened overnight and it's amazing. So we get stuck. It, 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 let me think, phrase it in this context. When I got into energy 12 years ago, I asked my then chairman, why is he in energy? Was it because he believes in climate? Did he accept the climate science? Now, 12 years ago, that was maybe a a semi-acceptable question. He goes, Tim, I don't understand climate science. I just accept what the scientists tell me. But what I do know is energy security drives every government everywhere in the world. And I I look back on that statement, I reminded him of it uh, last year, and um, it was absolutely prophetic. Every country is ruled by energy security. We're probably the only country in the world that's not, because we have more gas, more oil, more coal, more wind, more solar, more hydro, more geothermal than any other country in the world. And so energy security a decade ago was not an issue in Australia, whereas it is for China, it's central to China, it's central to Japan, it's central to Korea, it's central to India. And so what are those countries doing? They're looking after number one, as governments always do. They're looking after their own interests. When they talk about dealing with climate science, they're also actually saying, we're weaning ourselves off imported fossil fuels. All of those four countries are four of the world's biggest importers of fossil fuels. So it's funny how energy security and doing the right thing for the climate actually go hand in hand. So whenever I talk to an Indian energy minister or Indian coal minister or the Indian coal fired power generation uh, executives, they all really like the work IEFA does because they all work on national energy security issues. And it's about weaning India off its reliance on 85% oil 50% imported LNG and 20% imported thermal coal. So if I say to them, I've got a solution that allows you to reduce your reliance on imported fossil fuels, they're 100% all in. Mm. And so that's the difference. Australia is one of the world's three largest fossil fuel exporters. It's almost inevitable that we're going to be a global laggard. Now, wash my mouth out, we already are a global laggard, but Um, That's because we are a massive fossil fuel export. We've got a lot to lose. But as Ross Garnaud constantly says, Australia will be a world superpower in renewables. I'm 100% convinced on that. The world is moving in this direction. Australia is blessed as always, and we will be a world superpower. And most importantly, all of our key trade partners are moving 100 miles an hour to decarbonise now belatedly. They're all in and Australia needs to get on with it. There are massive investment, employment and export opportunities. I'm with Twiggy Forrest. I'm not with Twiggy on a lot of things, but on this one he's dead right. This is the topic of the decade. Australia will be a world leader and the employment, investment and export opportunities are just too obscenely bullish for us to ignore and let people like Angus Taylor or Matt Canavan hold us back from the future terrific tim thank you so so much for that we'll uh, we'll include a um
2: a link also to your uh your uh your site because you've got a you know you do a lot of extremely good and valuable research that i'm sure many people would love like to hear and um, we will have you back later because clearly the 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 hydrogen and the jobs opportunities i mean we all thought you know people wanted to be a, a minerals engineer and then they want to be electrical engineer now they all want to be chemical engineers or should be wanting to be chemical engineers as we As we enter the world of green molecules, I guess, is the way to describe it and uh, and also the opportunities to transform materials in Australia using green energy so that we can have, um, you know, green mineral exports, which, um, which are just horrendously large opportunities for Australia, uh, uh, which other countries don't have so We'll have you back on again. We'll talk about those as we do with others. Thank you so much for your uh, time, Charlie. It was great to catch up again. Look forward to our next podcast. And thank you, Tim, so much for, uh, for being with us today. Thank you, everybody.
0: You've been listening to the Independence Can Podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or through the Apple Podcast app and be sure to tweet us your thoughts, suggestions and insights using the Independence Can Podcast hashtag.